Knowable.me acknowledges that we record this podcast, work and live on the unceded lands and waters of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Their wisdom, storytelling and deep listening is a history we pay respect to in the creation of this podcast. Welcome to today's episode where we'll be exploring the world of online forms or web forms that seem to have become a ubiquitous aspect of daily life from applying for jobs to accessing healthcare to ordering takeaway. There are three guests coming your way today who all share a unique perspective of web forms. First though, I've done a bit of digging into the origins of web forms and like anything in history, there is some debate about who came first. Cast your mind back to the mid-90s, if you happen to have been on the planet then. Meatloaf was doing anything for love, but wasn't yet having to fill out web forms. And Billy Joel had a river of dreams and clearly no clue what web forms were going to be like. Often referenced as the first was effectively a search engine form called Aliweb, A-L-I-W-E-B, that searched the Aliweb database. It asked what you want to search for, checkboxes for certain types of information, how you wanted the information displayed, and an opportunity to restrict the number of search results. That was likely 1993, but definitely 1994. And in internet terms, believe it or not, by the end of 1995, some big companies had come into existence, including Yahoo, Amazon, and eBay. 1995 is also credited as the first use of the term user experience in terms of the World Wide Web, and it's all downhill from there. Also in 1995 was HTML 2.0, and with it, support for the form and input tags, which for the non-technical among us are fundamental features that still live on today in web forms. The time for web forms to take off came when online payments became possible and easy to access. PayPal came along in 1999 to help with that. This is when we were starting to do more online, sign up for things, MySpace, email newsletters, eBay, etc. And they were all requiring us to fill out forms of various types. The smartphone has kicked things up a notch since about 2010, and certainly in the last few years, governments, utilities, banks, supermarkets, and other everyday experiences we all must engage with have moved online and invariably include a web form. I'll link to a fabulous history article in the show notes if you're keen to read about the evolution of web forms in more detail. And now to my first guest, who is very much on the front line of the impact that web forms can have. Welcome to Knowable.me, Joe. Tell me, what makes your experience of web forms unique? I think to answer that question, I've got to tell you a little bit about what we do and how we might use web forms because they are the bane of some of um, the people that use our service existence. So Four Voices is a charity that assists people connect, whatever that word connection means. So we have a number of uh, connection hubs which are, are used as outreach vehicles going to, into the lower socioeconomic areas in Brisbane and now Sydney, helping people with connection. And so the, the vehicles are outfitted with Wi-Fi and laptops and mobile phones, etc. And we go to different locations to help people with their connection needs. So in, in terms of your question, we help people navigate their way around the internet. We help people set up email addresses or set up bank accounts or other accounts or help them with uh, MyGov queries or Centrelink applications. And oftentimes the web forms that we help people with will be to help them access 
benefit. So we do do a lot of work with sort of government websites or Centrelink benefit forms, pension applications, that sort of thing. So we do have lots of jokes about web forms because, you know, the people that we deal with mainly are in trauma or in difficulty. You know, we help, help a lot of people who are experiencing domestic violence or homelessness or mental health issues or language issues or otherwise doing it tough. And, you know, some of those web forms and government websites are really difficult to navigate even when you're completely on top of your game and when you have English as your first language and you know how to complete them. But think for a moment about the cohort that we're dealing with, that they're an impossibility to do on your own many times. So web forms seem to be the gateway to everything now. Everything's online. What are the flow-on effects when people don't have access to those sorts of things? They don't access the benefit. Uh, they don't access the service that they're trying to, to get support from, you know, if, unless they have a family member or a friend or, or an outfit like us to help them get online, access the form, complete the form, they're stranded. So web forms really are fundamental to the life support that people need. Absolutely. Like we set up our organisation, we launched in March 2020, which was a dumb time to start a charity because we'd had bushfires and floods and then about to enter this era that no one will ever forget <laughs> called COVID. And... Um, and six months into that journey, I thought, my God, this wasn't such a dopey time to start after all because, you know, we deal with people who are lonely and we deal with people who struggle to get access to the internet or who can't afford to get a computer or use computing or, you know, access and ability big issues for people that we help out. And, and every one of us was pushed towards a digital device like a mobile phone and a laptop computer. Don't talk to a human being, you know, jump on this website, go here, ring this number, you, could, you know, have, have your doctor's appointment on telehealth, go to a job interview on Zoom, you know. So many of us adapted, but so many more didn't and were caught really without the capability to do that. So it, for us it was a fantastic time to be out there helping people on the streets. There's a combination of factors, obviously, including access to technology, digital literacy, literacy generally. Is it a combination of all of those things or are there some things that are more contributing than others in the work you see? No, I think it is a combination of all of those things. Certainly our experience over the last three years would suggest that, you know, well, the, the stats are that one in eight people in Australia are not connected to the internet. That's nearly three million people. So that's a huge number and I think we were all asked to do more and more over the last three years since COVID hit because we can't talk to a human being or we are always being pushed towards doing things online. So if you started off in the beginning of 2020 with low digital literacy and no computer and no, no ability to, to afford access, then you're, you're stuck. Libraries closed services that you might have otherwise relied on disappeared. We weren't allowed to go and visit people. All of those support networks also disappeared. Definitely sounds like very good timing for for Four Voices. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we spent um, the first six months standing in Centrelink queues and offering people cups of tea and coffee 
saying, hey, do you want a cup of tea while you're standing in the queue? You're going to be there for a while. And then whilst you're talking to people, like, so what are you doing in the queue today? And, you know, women who were trapped at home with their abusive partners sitting in a Centrelink queue in order to find out whether she has eligibility for a crisis payment or a Centrelink benefit so she could actually make an escape. Older Australians who were standing in Centrelink queues never think that, thinking they would have to see the inside of a Centrelink office. But with their superannuation eroded, then they were looking down the barrel of, you know, an aged pension instead of living off their superannuation funds. Stuff like that, we were, it was an extraordinary privilege to hear the stories of people that were really heavily impacted by, by the pandemic. I reckon, I reckon that COVID birthed a new, a new pandemic, and I call it the pandemic of disconnection. You know, we're all, we're all forced to do this stuff that we hadn't actually been trained to do or, or familiar with or given any lead up to. It had to all happen spontaneously. And being forced to do so at home when we were in lockdown, you know, that created additional isolation from a social perspective, a total disconnection for many, which has given rise to additional problems like additional domestic violence and mental health issues and all of that aftermath where we're all trying to grapple with as well. And you're out there doing the best you can with what you've got. What do we need from these people who are designing forms and at the forefront of that? What do they need to know? What are the things that they need to, to do or think about? I mean, I say to politicians all the time, come out and stand in the streets with me, you know, like have a look at what's going on in your electorate or in your patch um, to find out that, you know, the, the sample size that you've, that you've dealt with to, des- to design these web forms or whatever it is you're trying to do is too limited. You know, you have to look at the whole population and the, the cohort of people you're trying to support with these forms. Um, and I think you'd do a hell of a lot better if you were able to actually see it from the perspective of the users that are the low-tech ability users. I don't think I've heard anybody in three years say, oh, my God, isn't that amazing, that web form or that <laughs> government website? Or, you know, like, nobody says it's, it's, it's a laughing stock when you open up the, the conversation about it. You have to tell me some of those web form jokes later. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to add, any other thoughts about web forms while we're here? I just think, you know, the, the complexity of the web forms or certainly the demographic that I'm talking about and we deal with different age groups and clearly some of the younger cohorts are more able to get around these these web forms but doesn't mean that they're pleasant to deal with. You know, there's a complexity about them I don't think anybody's fond of. But if you do talk to people who are traumatised with other issues going on for them, you know, women in their 20s and 30s who are being abused at home you just your head is mush you can't you can't figure stuff out even if you you even if you're the most digitally literate person on the planet you're still going to struggle with stuff because it's complex so four voices does rely on volunteers so if people want to get involved what skill sets do they need and, and where can they get more information we call ourselves a connection service and that word connection means different things to different people um my prerequisite for success in Four Voices is to be a good conversationalist because the vast majority of people that we meet seek to have that social connection. And you can only really dive deep into a person's issues and help problem solve using technology 
if you are good at conversation. You know, you if we walked up to a person in the street and say, hey, we've got a bunch of computers on board and mobile phones and printers, scanners, copiers, etc., and you can use them for free, people will go, oh, you know what, I hate computers. No way, no thank you. But if you open up the conversation saying, g'day, have a cup of tea with us in the chat, what's going on for you? And you'll soon find out what's going on for a person and then you use the digital device to help the problem solving. That's the key. So the volunteer needs to be, um, personally, I don't like people coming to us with amazing digital skills because then you create this kind of unequal, um, almost a master-servant sort of relationship where you're the teacher and and he's the student or she's the student and that creates inequality and we're all about trying to form partnerships. We don't call people customers or clients because that implies there's some kind of transaction that occurs that we're selling something in exchange. But we're not, you know, we're entering a partnership with an individual and the outcome of the partnership should be beneficial for both parties. So the sort of people that I'm looking for as volunteers are genuine people who want to, you know, do something nice for people that are in strife and that have got the life skills and the personality, the communication skills to to just listen without judgment, to talk without any kind of uh, preconceived ideas or personal agendas getting in the way. You know, it's a it's a really non-judgmental service. We stand out on the front line where where people feel less vulnerable, I guess, because we're an outreach service. We don't we're not asking people to come into an office and be evaluated for a service. We're just asking to come and have a cup of tea and a chat. That's the first thing. And then if, if someone says, hey, listen, I, I, um, I really need a resume um, and you don't know how to do that, it's, it's much better for you to say, hey, I've never done one before, but let's jump online and see if we can figure it out together. I'm sure there'll be a Google template somewhere for a resume. It's so, so much better than saying, yes, sit down there and tell me about your experiences and I'll, you know, I'll be the, the boss kind of thing. It's that's the kind of volunteer I want. And the way people become volunteers is obviously just jump on our website, which is fourvoices.org.au, and there's a big volunteer tab that you complete a couple of simple questions and we go from there. And that will be linked in the show notes. Thanks for your time today, Joe. No worries, Kelly. I honestly thought we'd be much further into this podcasting thing before we'd have an ad break, but this one is both memorable and on brand for my next guest. Hashtag not sponsored. The Reading Writing Hotline is there to help adults who have difficulties with reading, writing or spelling. Their number is 1300 Go on, take the plunge. So welcome to Knowable.me, Vanessa. Thanks, Kelly. What makes your experience of web forms unique? So the hotline is a national referral service and we receive calls from people all over the country who are struggling with literacy in one way or another. 
And what we're starting to hear more and more are that people are having problems with forms. And we're receiving calls from people trying to fill in forms. We're receiving calls from community workers who have clients who are trying to fill in forms and therefore they're having to spend time helping them fill in forms. And we're receiving calls from government organisations who are saying, we think we've got a problem with our forms. Um, So it's really, there seems to have been a huge increase in form filling. There's always been forms. We've always had paper-based forms. But during COVID, and particularly in response to all this disaster relief, bushfires and floods and, um, you know, financial assistance, a lot of those forms are now going online and that creates a whole new level of complexity for people that already struggle to fill in forms because of their literacy. They now have digital literacy they have to contend with as well. So I suppose that's why our experience is unique is we're hearing from people that are just really struggling out there and there doesn't seem to be a lot of support services to help people. So if we zoom out a little bit, what is the snapshot of adult literacy in Australia? Well, there was an international study done and it's about 10 years old now, but that last study said that 44% of Australians, Australian adults we're talking about, have a literacy level that is below what's required for everyday life and work to, to you know cope with life and work. Now that equates to about 7 million people across Australia. That is an enormous amount of people and, you know, you wonder how a country can function with 7 million people that struggle. But really, a lot of people, if they had to sit down and do a test uh, on a particular literacy level, yes, they might be below this level that's required, but they also have lots of coping mechanisms. You know, people with literacy gaps are amazing at using their memory, at using visual cues, at getting people to help them. Uh, and so in a workplace or in their home life, they're coping because they they adopt strategies to help them. But there are times when it just gets too much and perhaps the loved one that did help them has passed away and they're needing to help themselves. And in that case, that's when they come to us and say, look, we need some help. What the hotline does is refer people into classes. We talk through what the issues are, what they want help with, and then we help to find them classes in the community, whether it's a TAFE or a community college or maybe some help through their local library with a volunteer that can help them with things. And that's what that's the role that we play. That really is a huge number of people. When I think about the disability community being 18 to 20% of the population and think, well, that's not really a minority. This is twice that, if not more. It really is a large number of people. How is that changing over time or is it changing over time? Look, the number of people and their literacy level is not really changing over time. What's changing over time are the literacy requirements. So you think back 20 years ago, and you probably can't because you're very young, but I certainly can. And 20 years ago, you'd come home from work and you'd sit down and that's the end of a job. There were jobs out there where you didn't have to read and write. Nowadays, you come home and you've got an inbox full of emails to cope with about your kids at school or your banking or your, you know, a million surveys. There's just so much 
information you have to absorb. A lot of things are now online, so we're having to read rather than speak. The online support services are there instead of picking up a phone and getting help over the phone. You have to fill in a little chat box. The literacy requirements are so high and it's often set by people, you know, the people that write this communication are highly literate and they're probably surrounded by highly literate people as well. And that just doesn't occur to them that there's this huge number of people out there that are, are, are struggling with what they're, what they're putting out, struggling to read it, and they're not giving them any alternatives. We know from the Digital Inclusion Index that digital inclusion in Australia is multi-millions of people as well who both have either no access to the to the digital world or quite limited access. Do you see a correlation between low literacy and low digital literacy? Absolutely. The PIAC survey, so that international survey, also looks at digital skills uh, because that's such an important role. As a literacy teacher, we include digital in everything we do. So we don't just teach literacy with, you know, pen and paper. We're we're teaching literacy using computers, even in a face-to-face environment. And that's really important because you can read and write. You could be at the highest level of literacy with your reading and writing. But you if you can't use a computer, then you can't make meaning from all of the words, all the text on the computer. So the digital is really important and We did a survey uh, about two years ago now at the beginning of COVID where so much of what we did became online and there was no face-to-face support anymore. So the library that might have helped you with your device, they were in lockdown. The community workers that might have helped them were in lockdown. The teachers that would help you in a classroom, everything was online. So that digital divide became much larger because there was no alternative and people didn't have devices that they could use. So a phone is not a great device to use when you're trying to learn to read and write. A computer is much more important. They might not have had internet access at home. They might not have had the hardware because if they had a computer at home, their kids were using it for school and that became the priority. So, you know, often people that were needing to improve their literacy were down the bottom of the list in terms of accessing hardware. They might not have had internet support and they might not have had digital skills. So, yeah, it really, I mean, COVID was a a massive eye-opener, I think, with people talking about, people talk about shining a light on. It certainly shone a light on people out there that relied on other people to support them. We even had calls from people that were working that said, look, when I was in my job in the office, I just started a job and I was coping really well. But now I have to work from home. Everything is an email. And my my literacy when it comes to reading and writing is is now needing to be at a different level. And I I'm not at that level. So I could do my job in the office. I can't do it at home. I really struggle. And I think that's you know, it was a really sad time for a lot of people. So there are also a lot of people out there who spend a whole lot of their life designing forms and designing ways to gather that information or to get people through a user experience. What do they need to know about adult literacy in Australia? Well, I think the first thing they need to think about is who is their audience. And if you don't know 
if you assume that your audience are people that are like you, um, then you're wrong. So you need to look at, as you said, the 20% of the population who have a disability that may impact their ability to access forms online. Certainly, people with literacy issues, when you add that together, that's an enormous amount of people. So think about who your audience is and design your form for those audiences. So, you know, when you're designing forms, you need to be looking at, there are a lot of simple strategies to help a form be much more accessible. Um, Let's put the online form aside and we just talk about a hard copy, good old pen and paper form. When you're designing those kind of forms, you need to look at, making sure you're using personal pronouns. So you're not making things really abstract. You make it really concrete. You can submit this information rather than this information needs to be submitted. You know, you're using personal pronouns and you're using an active voice. So you write it in such a way that it's really clear what needs to happen and who it needs to happen for. Uh, So you can submit this form and we will provide an email or you know that that makes it clear that seems really simple though doesn't it that that's a really simple change I think when people write forms they feel like they've got to write in legalese for some reason and it just makes it impossible for people to understand I mean I spend my days reading and writing and filling in forms and writing submissions and you know I do a lot of literacy and I get to forms and I don't know what they're talking about and the problem is that for people with literacy gaps they're terrified and they think that those forms are are set to trip them up whether that's the case or not that's what it feels like and so if they if a question is ambiguous about what they need to do or how they need to do it They feel like if they get it wrong, they're going to be penalised. And in some cases, that is actually the case. So just to make it really clear, really clear what needs to happen and make sure it's always in the same tense. Sometimes forms are in past tense, future tense, present tense. Just make that consistent. So they're pretty simple things. Um, And that's in the content. And then you need to look at how that's presented and as well as using simple sentences and, and making sure that particularly numerical information. So when you're using numbers like date of birth or addresses, that needs to be written in a consistent way, but in a really clear way. Provide an example. This is how we want it to be written. And when it comes to forms that are online, of course, often they're um, very set. You know, you put your address in and unless you get it exactly right it won't pick it up and it needs to pick your address up in order to be accepted and I mean I just I despair at how people complete those forms with that really standard it has to be one way or it won't be accepted Um, so yeah the online how it's structured online just test it out with people if you're going to design a form give it to people who are your audience and ask them to give you some feedback on it That would be my advice. Are there any resources out there for best practice in forms or online forms? The Reading Writing Hotline has provided a resource on reader-friendly communication, which gives really practical tips. It gives case studies. It gives links to other information. And that's provided freely on our website. 
The reason we did that is because there's so much information out there and there's a whole industry on plain English. People feel like they have to get a consultant in to come and look at what they're doing and it needs to be really expensive. Uh, So when you go online and do a Google search, you go down this web of paying people, but actually there's really practical um, things that you can do in within an organisation if you're providing any communication that you can do yourself. And so we tried to put that information together and make it a little bit, we, we plain English, the plain English. Uh, so that, that resource is available on our website. And also there are government style guides, which we link to in that resource that also provide helpful information. Great. And we will absolutely be in the show notes, uh, those links for anyone who wants to to check them out. So tell me anyone who is also listening who might want some support with their own literacy journey, what can you offer? People can ring the Reading Writing Hotline from anywhere in Australia and anybody can call. It's not you could be calling about your next door neighbor or your son or daughter as long as they're adults, um, we can assist them. And what we do is We're all teachers on the phone lines and we help people to firstly unpack what it is that they're needing help with. Some people feel like they have a terrible issue with spelling and so therefore they must go to a class. And to talk people through, perhaps there is something called spell check on the computer and if you're emailing, you can use that. So, you know, we try and if people want to go to a class, we will help them find a class that's in their area, talk them through what's involved, what the cost might be. Uh, but also we give people practical tips over the phone and reassure them that sometimes the things they do that they think are cheating are actually really good strategies <laughs> that we all use, no matter what kind of reader we are, we all use those strategies to help us with our reading. That's great. Thank you. And one last question from me. How do you get the phone number jingle out of your head? You don't, Kelly. You leave it in there. Sometimes people call the reading writing hotline and they say, we've been meaning to call for 15 years, 20 years. The hotline's been around for 30 years, but we've had that number in our head for so long since we were kids and we finally thought it's time to call. They don't have to go and find the information. They don't have to find us online. That little jingle's in their head and uh, it works, you know. It's when it works, it works. So we're not changing it and uh, people call us and then we can give them a hand and help them on their journey. We always say to people, it's never too late to learn. Anytime you want to pick up the phone, we're here to help you. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for joining me. We're going to jump to that jingle now. So anyone who's listening and gets it stuck in their head, you're welcome. If you're an adult who has difficulties with reading, writing or spelling, the Reading Writing Hotline has some very good news. It can actually be easier to take the plunge and improve your reading and writing skills than to keep putting it off. Phone the Reading Writing Hotline and find out how. Their number is 1300 That's the Reading Writing Hotline and they're there to help. 1300 Go on, take the plunge. Welcome to Knowable.me, Martin. Tell me what makes your experience of online forms unique. Thanks, Kelly. I think my experience of online forms, I wouldn't go so far as to make a bold claim that it's unique, but it's very personal and it's around my observations of the struggles that my sons 
has in navigating uh, let's call them administrative type systems through forms that don't account for information processing difficulties that neurodiverse individuals may have. So it's not my experience that's unique. It's my perspective that might be slightly non-typical. What's your earliest memory of a web form? That's a good question. It's probably the late 90s. And it was just interacting with, oh no, it'd be pre that, it'd be just using the, the search form on Yahoo, I think, which would have been mid, mid 90s at the time. It was just using online web indexes, which is pretty boring. I'm sorry. There's <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with being, being boring. Are there any memorable web forms since then that you've got locked in your brain for either good or less good reasons? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I hesitate to give specific examples because I don't want to shame shame um, specific implementations because I know, having designed web interfaces, how hard it is to get right. But yeah, I've worked with a couple. I've had to use a couple really obtuse ones that, in general terms, what made them memorably bad was their use of jargon and absence of context no ex- sort of narrative explanation of why it was asking these things. Yeah, there's a couple, and I, like I said, I, I know what I have in my mind, but I, I really don't want to call out specifics. We're not here to name and shame, but we are here to name good, the good things. So tell me about Translate Me. Right. So for context, I'm a principal prototyping engineer with AWS, and we, we build these little... They're not proof of concepts, they're real working things that demonstrate they are the possible, the possible for customers in about six to eight weeks. And very early on, after I started on that team, Abigail O'Brien at Telstra came to us with the challenge of building a technical solution that would allow someone with low English literacy to interact with an arbitrary web form online just through voice and audio. All right, so that, and this includes people whose English literacy was low because of, um, you know, language other than English is all culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. So fluency in English could be low for lots of reasons. So they had to be able to talk to the web form in the language of their choice. The solution had to translate it to the language of the web form itself. The web form had to talk to that user in their language with prompts translated from the structure of the form in its language. So there was this whole complete loop of text-to-speech, uh, and in between that text-to-speech, it was text from language A, English, to language B, whichever the user preferred, and then it had to speak that translated text into, uh, in, in, in make it audible, so text-to-speech in that language, and then the response that the user gave in their language you had to listen to, transcribe it into text, and then take that text in language B, translate it back into text in language A as a response for the form. So there's three bits of text. There's transcription of audio to text, there's translation of text to text, and there's text-to-speech generation. And we have, there were three services that were kind of obviously showcased in this solution, which was the Amazon Transcribe, Amazon Translate and Amazon Poly, and with those we were able to produce something that did what Abigail needed. So one of the hobbies of YouTubers out there is translating text into other languages and then translating it back into 
English, say, mm-hmm. and seeing whether they can understand the recipe or instruction, set of instructions. Yes. So I imagine that given that's an entertaining hobby, that the actual challenge of getting content right for a web form wasn't a particularly easy engineering challenge. That wasn't actually the hardest problem. And and in this context, it wasn't actually the loop was broken a little bit in that direction back into the form was really only one way. It really only had to be good at getting the user's response in, say, French, for example, and making it accurately translated back into English for the form. It wasn't taking English from the form, translating it to French, then translating that back to English and then back into the form. So it wasn't suffering that, we call it lossy sort of loop. It wasn't quite that bad. So the user was accounting for slightly potentially loose translation into their language, but they were giving a good French response. So in each direction, it was working with accurate source language material. So that wasn't such a problem. But the other thing that wasn't such a problem is that the forms are structured right. And most forms are asking for one thing, a yes or a no, time, a phone number. So that constraint on the responses inherent in a web form made that a bit easier. The harder problem was actually the legacy problem in that you can't, like, large enterprises have tens of thousands of existing forms in a given language, and it's not practical to rebuild them all from scratch to do this. So thinking of a way of providing a non-intrusive solution that can be added to an existing web form to provide this functionality, that was the engineering challenge for us. That's really interesting. I've been looking at the history of online forms. And I think 1999 was HTML 2.0 that gave us the form and input tags, Mm -hmm. which are still used today. So if we think about the history, how long the possible web forms have been around, that is a long legacy and it's not practical. So what can we do? Exactly. Well, you know, this is a very IT person response. It depends. (laughs) Uh, I'm not trying to be facetious. It does depend. You want to tackle the maximised value for the the most people. Given the plain language processing and AI that we're seeing at the moment, and I'm I'm loving it myself, where does technology now go in, in helping people, everyone really, deal with web forms? So I think even in 2019 when I did this, it was very good timing because the tech was actually quite good. It was easy to use the underlying engineering stuff that you through through any kind of um, experienced developer. It wasn't hard to get access to it. It worked well. It um, it wasn't expensive or, or sort of it wasn't exotic. But in the, in the years since we we completed that, I haven't seen advancement in the effective application of these existing technologies, and they've only gotten better, especially the text to speech things. There's some new ones out which are actually quite good. I mean, they've been good for a while, but some of the new generative models for text-to-speech, just quite astonishing. So I think the breakthroughs need to come more in awareness and empathy. In some situations, you're only able to interact with a a fraction of the market that you could be commercially engaging with, right? So I, I think it's more than half of the breakthrough needs to be people getting it. I have asked others what web form 
online form designers need to think about. I'll ask you the same question. You might also have a view from an engineering perspective what engineers Mm. need to do. Engineers or any front-end developer should familiarise themselves with barriers to access, right? So the Telstra Digital Inclusion Index is an excellent piece of work that just captures uh, in pretty amazing stark detail how significant this language and English literacy is as a barrier to accessing digital services, right? It's a huge thing. It was, in 2019, it was 2.6 million people were not able to properly access digital services in Australia because of English literacy barriers. That's a lot of people. I mean, as an engineer, be aware of that. And then engineers are quite excellent at applying that knowledge. That's their kind of their job. So I think once they're aware of that, will factor into advocacy in their work. Uh, and I think UX designers, I would put into that pile as well, just awareness is the start. In your personal observations of your son's interaction with the world and potentially online interactions as well, mm-hmm. what do you hope for him in the future of what the technology can do and how that will include him? I'd love him to be able to access the fundamental digital utilities of of life administration. So I don't know uh, his phone company, his online banking, his ATO stuff, all of that stuff. I think it's unreasonable to expect entities to design specifically for narrow target audiences, right? So I think you can't custom design a solution that's perfectly suited to everyone's needs. But I do think by accounting for... It's like when you design a UI, actually, if you design it to explain it to children, so an explain like I'm five model, you're actually making it easier for everyone. So I think if you reflect on the things that are barriers to someone with an information processing disorder or executive functioning issues, and, and you account for those in the design, you're actually making it easier to use for everyone. And I, I actually think that's applicable with the digital inclusion barriers from English literacy. I think the solutions that are good for that are actually good for, in a lot of ways, for accessibility general, generally. Right, that's what I was saying. Couldn't agree more. The layer that you're talking about, though, that's the role of things like Translate Me, is being able to put some technology in the middle that does help bridge that gap from something that may not be built wide enough but you can widen the audience. Yes, yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And I think there are specific things where tech can play and should play a really big role because the solutions are getting fast, effective and and accessible. They've been good for a while. There's a lot that we can do to utilise them as not stopgaps, the wrong word, but um, to augment and cover, cover the gaps that a straight HTML form on screen is never going to be good at doing. You can add a lot, a lot of richness of interaction that helps whole groups of people interact with that form a lot more easily. So I'm sure in that home office there, you've got a crystal ball. What is that yeah. telling you about what's next? What do people maybe not know about how good the technology is and what's what's around the corner? What's next? Um, I'm not aware of what the next big thing is, but. Looking at what I've seen happen over the 33 years of my career, I think I'm an optimist. And so I think 
broadly things are getting better. I think the power of technology to be able to make a difference is getting realised. The thing is always the human thing. I think generative AI could be interesting in, in lots of ways. I think the large language models, I don't know because they're not self-aware. They don't know when they're wrong. <laughs> so, But that doesn't matter. I have a gut feeling that there are certain applications of these technologies where the limitations of these really amazing new things actually don't matter. They can still be really useful. What I want to see, the next breakthrough I want is the human breakthrough of the awareness of the issues and motivation to do something about it. That's the breakthrough I want to see happen. I think, I actually think that's, in my experience, getting better. I'm not some sort of techno-utopian who thinks everything is going to be hunky-dory, but I do think all the underlying things are getting better at explicitly providing for building solutions that are inclusive. The rubber hits the road when you've got decision makers and prioritization and humans involved. And so that's where I want to see the breakthrough. Thank you. Is there anything about online forms or web forms that we've haven't covered that you want to get out into the world? Man, I, I think so many implementations of forms that I've seen on the web, they clearly haven't been tested for their usability in constrained real conditions. So on small screens, on lower bandwidth connections, the user experience is still really poor in a lot of cases, especially when you add in pretty normal constraints like a slightly flaky internet connection, um, the size of the of the code that's deployed to to be downloaded for the form to even work. In a lot of cases can exceed a megabyte. And that's a lot of time waiting and things rendering and jumping all over the screen and you know when you've got elements that are moving around on screen as the page is downloading that actually becomes a problem for example for people with a motoric impairment right just really fundamental testing is not being done still that's that's my comment on web forms anyway the web form generally and i think we might have a trifecta there of all three guests on this particular episode suggesting that greater variety of testing needs to be done, greater variety of users and context and situations. So that's the final word, I think, for today. Thank you for your time, Martin. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Kelly. That's all for today's episode on online forms. I hope you enjoyed listening and maybe even learned something. A big thank you to Joe, Vanessa and Martin for sharing their insights and experiences. As always, please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for future topics, feel free to reach out to me on social media or by emailing podcast at knowable.me. Thanks for listening.